Okay, Dave Power. Um, here we are. Uh, I think if this lasts for one episode or two, this is going to be our our final um, visit to uh, our final our last few hours in East Asia before we move back to the Metropole, as it I suppose <laughs> was called. Um, yeah, it's been uh, it's been fun. Yes. We'll 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 take we'll take away many memories. <laughs> I guess that's what history is, you know, the memories you make along the way. Yeah. Um so today we're talking about I mean ultimately it's culminating in the Yi Ho Tuan uprising, otherwise known as the Boxer Rebellion. But it's mostly China. You're gonna take us to Vietnam as well because Similarly to the way the Sino-Japanese War had a lot to do with Korea, the Sino-French War of 1884 had a lot to do with Vietnam. So you're going to give right. some of the background to that. But um, I, had a, I had a couple of notes uh, that I wanted to make. One, I was reading, Dave, this really interesting book about... Uh, it's like the Eastern Western. It's like called The Eastern Origins of Western Civilization or something. Cambridge... <laughs> Press is very good, but he, you know, some of, he has at least some explanation for the so-called Japanese miracle in the sense that he argued, you know, I was saying that everybody was trying was trying desperately to trying to figure out how Japan managed to do it. His argument is that you know the closed door approach um, that the Tokugawa shogunate took um, was less closed than it appeared. So it was primarily about excluding Catholics and the Portuguese, which is why they maintain the relationship with the Dutch. But that was relative to Europe. He was saying, if you think of it relative to Asia, Japanese um, business and trade was, they were present all over Southeast Asia and they continued to trade, um, kind of informally so there was a lot of ways around that edict um and he something similar apparently happened with china too uh, there were a lot of ways around that 1453 or 1434 or whatever that edict where they said we're closing up um where you know chinese diaspora and arab traders there there was a whole circumventing of the closed um door that that he's uh, he kind of unearths, which is interesting. And there's also considerable reform that the Tokugawa did in terms of weakening the samurai, um, forcing the daimyo to live in Edo, like a lot of the things that I guess Louis the Fourteenth did uh, to create an absolute monarchy. Uh, he kind of shows that. So ultimately, his argument is they didn't just spin on a dime overnight but rather that a lot of the reforms they made were the culmination of processes they had put in place under the tokugawa shogunate okay so not quite a not quite as so i guess i mean i don't know what the implication is it doesn't make them any easier to imitate certainly no no (laughs) hey i'll agree that they didn't spin on a dime but they they still spun on a quarter or something. <laughs> they spun out in a small area. Yeah. Yeah. And to turn into a great manufacturing power when you have no natural resources to speak of, that's still pretty. Yeah. Cool. So their big thing, apparently, in the previous hundred 
some years was silver. So they had silver mines in Japan. Um, And that's, you know, China was interested in silver. So (laughs) lucky for them, (laughs) they could get everything they needed. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. All right. So speaking of China, um, do you know this quote from Voltaire? There's a quote from Voltaire. If as a philosopher, one wishes to instruct oneself about what has taken place on the globe, one must first turn one must first of all turn one's eyes toward the east, the cradle of all arts to which the West owes everything. That's uh, Voltaire. That's a quote from the same book. You can get a flavor for what this guy's <laughs> doing. It's not my dad, Dave. This, this guy's name is... Uh, <laughs> it's, his name is John M. Hobson. And uh, so, you know, I just... 2007 book. Okay, so that was Voltaire. But there's also this one. From our uh, good friend Garnet Wolseley, uh, who, remember, led the 1870 expedition against the Métis, uh, also was present at the burning of the uh, winter p- summer palace in uh, the Opium War II, 1860. So Wolseley says this, There is no nation numerically as great as China whose customs and modes of life are so generally common to all parts of their vast empire. To me, they are the most remarkable race on earth, and I have always thought and still believe them to be the great coming rulers of the world. They only want a Chinese Peter the Great or Napoleon to make them so, and have every quality required for the good soldier and the good sailor, and in my idle speculation upon this world's future, I have long selected them as the combatants on one side at the great battle of Armageddon, the people of the United States of America being their opponents. (laughs) Hopefully, uh, you know, this is one of those prophecies that I really hope the Americans are not reading and trying to make happen. <laughs> but yeah. every so often it does certainly look like that's exactly what they're trying to do. This kind of prediction seems to have been a, a 19th century thing because yeah. I, I definitely remember uh, Alex de Tocqueville in uh, Democracy in America sometime around 1850 predicting that within 100 years there would be only two great superpowers uh, on earth and those would be the united states and russia wow well the the tradition continued <laughs> yeah. in um george orwell's 1984 right there were three powers oceania which i guess is america eurasia which i guess is the british empire somehow and then east asia which i guess is china so there you go all right so where we're we're off to vietnam Actually, we're we're still in, in China, uh, okay. where the end of the Opium War does not mean the end of their troubles. Once you've been exposed yet again as uh, as a victim, paper tiger, uh, other bullies are going to pile on. So, despite the fact that they have a treaty of several years, well, over 150 years standing with the Russians. Russia decides that they need new borders, so China has to cede some territory to them. Uh, in return, they get a promise of support against the British and French. Uh, I don't know how genuine that promise was. Probably not, but then it might be just a little holdover from the Crimean War, where the Russians are still uh, upset about that. Yeah, there's no China doesn't have any really reliable allies <laughs> at this point in history. No, no. Well, for the longest time, they didn't need any or want any. 
Right. But yeah. Yeah. The scene does shift to, to Vietnam. So as with Korea, I went back to look at early uh, Vietnamese history and found out a few things I didn't, I didn't know. I, basically uh, Chinese domination for a thousand years from 111 BCE to about 905. I mean, during that period, there are plenty of uprisings, uh, brief periods of independence. But by the early 900s, and with the Battle of uh, Bakhtang River in 938, the Southern Han were defeated, and Vietnam got its independence. Unfortunately, the king who defeated the Chinese only lived another five years, and maybe that set the tone because the next many centuries of Vietnamese history follow a, a pattern that is repeated over and over again. So fighting against invaders, uh, as with Korea, they were invaded three times by the Mongols and the Tran dynasty who were in power at the time, uh, abandoned their cities, avoided open battle and basically fought a, a guerrilla war from you know the swamps and and the forests they like what so else, many yeah what do you do best strategy for fighting the mongols uh, yeah. plains horse archers right get yeah. get into the jungle yeah yeah meet me in the jungle <laughs> so they were they were fairly successful in in that the mongols eventually gave it up as a bad bad investment uh, like so many other places we've looked at, the Vietnamese fought each other plenty of times. There were wars between uh, Annam and the Kingdom of Champa, which would be roughly South Vietnam now. Uh, another huge invasion by the Ming in 1407, and the Chinese imposed the same old policies of uh, fairly ruthless exploitation uh, allied with cultural assimilation. Uh, they were expelled in 1428, and thereupon the Vietnamese went back to their favorite uh, pastime, civil wars, uh, multiple pretenders and contenders for the throne, uh, members of the previous dynasty seeking to make a comeback. Uh, the person who loses the power struggle most often goes to China, comes back with Chinese support, and the wars continue. So too many too many to list one though was really really strange i uh, i did not know about the uh the extremely unusual case of pinot de behen that so doesn't there, sound like that vietnamese of a name it's not it's uh french so there were uh french and spanish catholic priests missionaries uh, working in Vietnam from the 1600s, which is pretty early. But uh, my, my story takes place in the, the 1700s. So <laughs> there's, there's fighting going on between rival contenders from rival dynasties. The last emperor of the Lei dynasty went to the Qing for support. But another contender, the last surviving heir of the Taisson dynasty, uh, he met with a French cleric named Pignot de Behen. And Pignot de Behen suggested that there was another possible way to turn for support. 
So in, in 1784, this uh, Vietnamese prince traveled with Pinot de Béhen all the way to France, to Versailles, where... They haven't even had their revolution yet. Uh, 1784, no. Uh, <laughs> where he met with uh, King Louis XVI, and they signed the Little Versailles Treaty, uh, where the Vietnamese prince would get military aid in return for uh, a number of Vietnamese concessions. They weren't spelled out, but I think you can mm -hmm. figure it out for yourself. And of course, this plan was uh, scuttled by the French Revolution. So Pinot de Béhen went to Pondicherry. In, it, reminds me of, um, it reminds me of a line from that Hamilton musical where they're debating uh, whether to send help to France to defeat um, or to fight against the British. And uh, Jefferson doesn't want to and Hamilton... No, Jefferson wants to and Hamilton doesn't want to. Jefferson says, we signed a treaty. And Hamilton says, we've signed a treaty with a king whose head is in a basket. Would you like to take it out and ask it? <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> Sorry. That's all right. Uh, I should have known you'd go somewhere to, like that. In any case, uh, Pinot de Behan went to Pondicherry in India and recruited a regiment of Indian troops to support an expedition to Vietnam, which failed. But anyway, so that's the end of the French connection. That's a film reference if you're old enough. Um, what is the French connection? Oh, was During just, World uh, War II or? No, no, it's just a cop gangland thriller movie from the 70s. Doesn't matter. Before <laughs> your time. Long before your time. So, uh, finally in 1802, the Nguyen dynasty adopted a closed-door policy. And we've seen that before. I don't know if they were you know, consciously copying Japan. But I think they had had enough of the interference of Christian missionaries. So once they did this, they started persecuting and in extreme cases, executing Christian missionaries. Which led to the 1858 Franco-Spanish punitive expedition. So here's a case of you kill our missionaries, we now have a pretext for attacking you. It's like the arrow. It just mm -hmm. gives us a good reason. What What's interesting about the murder of missionaries is that this has been going on for years. Previous executions or persecution of missionaries barely caused a ripple in France. Their responses were uh, rare, first of all, and limited to diplomatic protests. So you kill a few of our missionaries and we say, hey, don't, don't do that. But now things are different because now, 1858, that's Napoleon III. And what we know about Napoleon III is Second he's never going to shy away from a chance to send his troops somewhere and gain a little military glory. Again, he's he is the source of Marx's history repeats itself the second time as farce, right? Yes. Yeah, well. 
It's also only a couple of years after the Crimean War, so, you know, he has some veteran troops, and why not send them somewhere? And also, the French missed out on much of the first Opium War. <coughs> I beg your pardon. So, I guess th- this looks like yeah, opp- opportunity fact, knocking. This is this is it. When Elgin, I, I remember we talked about this when we talked about Opium War too. Elgin stopped in France to talk to Napoleon the Third. Yeah. And uh, Napoleon the Third said, "Yeah, do whatever you want in China. I'm more interested in Vietnam right now." Yeah, we're we're going to politely carve out spheres of influence so that we don't tread on each other's toes. And yeah, I just wanted to point out the you know the hypocrisy of using the murdered missionaries as your casus belli, as your you know your cause, uh, your righteous cause. When you know in previous cases you you could have cared less. Uh, by 1850, there are about 600,000 uh, converts in Vietnam. But the bishops and most of the priests are French or Spanish. And understandably, the ruling dynasty doesn't trust these Catholics and fears what they might do. So that's the reason for the, the persecution. Uh, and the the uh, murders in 1857 is just a case of bad timing, because Napoleon has you know his hands free and decides to send an expedition. So there are already French troops participating in the Second Opium War, <clears throat> and that means there are already French ships on station. So they gather together a small force, and uh, I don't know if the Spanish were involved in the first punitive expedition. This is September of 1858. So they land and capture Da Nang. Uh, they seem to have expected Vietnamese Christians to rise and join them, which didn't <laughs> didn't happen. It, just as in the uh, Japanese case, there's this real overestimation of what uh, you know the Catholics, the Christians, will do. Uh, obviously, they didn't put <clears throat> loyalty to their religion first. So a Vietnamese army came to Da Nang and besieged it. And the French realized they didn't have quite enough troops to uh, be doing what they were doing. So a second expedition came. This one was a joint French and Spanish expedition. I think the Spanish troops came from the Philippines. Uh, They captured Saigon, but were unable to hold it. So before retreating, they destroyed the citadel and set fire to the granaries in an act of uh, vandalism. But rather spiteful. That was definitely uh, the way to be <laughs> at, at that time, right? I, I guess. It's the same time as Opium War too, right? Yeah. But now the timing issue uh, changed. The whole thing spun around because in 1859, Sardinia launched their war with Austria. And Napoleon III uh, was revealed as a participant in the plan the Plombier Agreement, which we covered in an earlier episode. So now Napoleon is involved in a a land war in Europe, a major war against Austria. And this is a bad time to have, you know, your troops tied up in Vietnam. So now the French are willing to negotiate. So they offer the Vietnamese a deal, uh, which, you know, they consider moderate terms. 
Well, the Vietnamese are well aware that there's a war in Europe. So they refuse the terms. Uh, their hope is that the French will leave, that they'll, that they'll just withdraw, go away. That doesn't happen. Uh, in 1861, a new expedition returns. Uh, this is composed of 70 ships, 3,500 men. There's a battle at Kihoa, and the Vietnamese are defeated. But there are quite a few French casualties. The, the disparity in, in casualties is not so great here as in China. Now the French offer new terms, and they are, as you would expect, considerably harsher than the previous terms. They want freedom of worship for Catholics, free trade, and indemnity of 4 million piastres, which are basically pesos. Uh, and they want the complete cession of Saigon province. And the emperor says, you're nuts. You know, I'll give you, number one, uh, the freedom of worship for Catholics, but that's it. So the war goes on. The French capture Mito and again increase their demands. So the emperor has little choice at this point. Uh, he can't fight them in, in the open. It's a bit like dealing with the Mongols again. So he switches to guerrilla warfare. Uh, and as French troops roam through the countryside, uh, you know, there's the occasional sniping at them, ambushes, and the French uh, predictably respond with acts of brutality against suspected insurgents. There are, are massacres and, well, it's the story we've heard before elsewhere. Uh, the emperor really had no choice but to make peace, which he did in 1862. And as a final humiliation, the French put his envoys on a rusty, decrepit old paddle wheel steamer and brought them down the river to Saigon. So in the treaty that followed, Vietnam had to cede three provinces and pay an even more, uh, an even higher indemnity. But that's not the end, of course, because that's just the beginning. Uh, in 1867, the French started another conflict. Vietnam was forced to cede three more provinces, and that was just the prelude to a treaty, the 1874 Treaty of Saigon. And of course, that wasn't the end because France is really, you know, gradually swallowing up everything that they can take. By 1883, uh, Tonkin was under French control as well. And, you know, annexation after annexation. And this is what got China's attention, finally. Yeah, there's actually a letter... One of the books that I used is uh, China from the Opium Wars to the 1911 Revolution by Chesneau, Bastide, and Bergel. Yeah, on the one hand, it seems pretty crazy for Vietnam to turn to China for help. China is the place that usually invades you. But there's also the fine old tradition, as I mentioned, of the defeated pretender to the throne going to China and, you know, asking for their help. Yeah, and from a legal perspective, such as it is, Vietnam is a tributary of China. Well, like Korea, on and off. Yeah, so at this point, there's a letter from the 
Vietnamese emperor, I guess, to the Chinese emperor saying, um, you know, help us, <laughs> basically. Uh, letter, uh, yeah, I have, I'm just reading this letter. It's your servant, Nguyen Tu Duc, king of Vietnam, bowing his head to the ground, salutes you and begs you to hear him. So he, yeah, he's basically asking, he's saying, here's all our tribute and, you know, we need your help. So the Chinese uh, answer. <laughs> and uh, there's, you know, there's a lot of rage towards mercenaries already, as it is. I mean, not mercenaries. <laughs> slip. That was good. That was a good slip, actually. Mm. <laughs> missionaries, <laughs> I meant. <laughs> towards missionaries. And uh, there was a, so the Chinese sent this force called the Black Flags. Um, and there was a leader, um, Liu Yongfu, who wrote like an open letter to the French, uh, <laughs> which is pretty cool. He's like, he says some quotes from this letter. You French brigands live by violence in Europe and glare out on all the world like tigers seeking for a place to exercise your craft and cruelty. You send out teachers of religion to undermine and ruin the people. You say you wish for international commerce, but you merely wish to swallow up the country. There are no bounds to your cruelty and there is no name for your wickedness. You trust in your strength and you debauch our women and our youth. Um, your crimes are unspeakable. Um, but Hanoi, yeah, so here, here's a good one. Um, but Hanoi is an ancient and honorable town. It is filled with honest and loyal citizens. Therefore, uh, God, I guess, could not endure that the city should be reduced to ruins and young and old be put to the sword. Uh, and then he says, you know, I, Liu Yongfu, issue this proclamation. Know ye French robbers that I come to meet you. So he came and he met them. So there was a, there was a land. The sea battles uh, did not go the Chinese way. Uh, the land battle uh, was not as decisive, definitely, as the French had hoped. So there's a campaign you can look up called the Lang San campaign. Um the French thought uh, the retreat from Langson, which uh, the French did, was uh, considered a humiliation for France. Um, so there were a series of battles uh, in these hills um, of Langson. Uh, lots of uh, desperate, smaller and medium-sized uh, battles, I guess. There's several brigade, two brigades uh, of French troops, um, and then ultimately there's, yeah. So seventy seven thousand two hundred combatants on the French side. They're saying twenty thousand on the Chinese side. This is Wikipedia, so take that gigantic grain of salt <laughs> that we usually do. But um, the way Hu Sheng, Hu Sheng, who wrote uh, another book that we're using for this, uh, is um, Imperialism in Chinese Politics. Uh, he wrote, it was from 1955 book, but he wrote, he summed it up as follows. The, although the French won naval battles off Fukien and Taiwan in 1885, their land forces suffered a serious defeat in Langson in northern Indochina. In no way could it be said that China had lost this war yet the Manchu authorities accepted humiliating peace terms and recognized Indochina as a French protectorate, surprising even the French themselves. So, so after this battle of Langson, which the French thought were, was kind of a humiliation and they were not happy with the treaty, but ultimately the Qing dynasty was so 
much in the pocket of the imperialists by this time that they, you know, kind of signed, gave the French, you know, whatever they wanted. Well, they, they were having troubles in, in Korea at the time. Yeah. And they had plenty of other issues going yeah. on. So yeah. uh, why they made th- that peace, I don't know. Well, yeah. I mean, Hu Shang, his interpretation is that they were basically puppets by this point. And uh, let me, yeah. And then in terms of their other problems. <laughs> yeah. Oh, boy. <laughs> let me uh, let me tell you a little bit about you. We know about the Taiping Rebellion. There was also the Neon Rebellion, which has which went on at the same time as the Taiping Rebellion. It was also part of this light white lotus society uh, for the restoration of the Ming. So it was active. The Neon were active in many provinces, Anhui, Jiangsu, Henan, and Shandong. Um, they never, they were not Christian. They didn't have that Christian thing going on. So they never joined up with the Ming, I mean, with the Taiping that way, but they were allied with them militarily. Yeah, so, fighting the same enemy. Yeah, exactly. So their their claim to fame was uh, a set of, a system of fortified villages, and then they had like a highly mobile cavalry component. So they had maybe twenty thousand horses, um, and they fought on after the Taiping fell in eighteen sixty four. But ultimately, they lost to uh, our famous Zhang Guofan and Li Hongzhang, the two, uh, you know, scholar generals of the Qing dynasty, uh, ultimately won the game of Go, if you want to think of it that way, encircling and destroying them. Then, that, but that's not all. So there's another rebellion, the Dali Sultanate. Um, the Dali oath was drive out the Manchus, unite with the Chinese, drive out the traitors. The, the Sultanate, um, you can imagine from the name, was Muslim. Mm -hmm. This is a Chinese uh, Muslim um, rebellion. And their supreme leader was someone named Du Wenshu. Uh, And many of their other leaders, besides the supreme leader, were managed, the Qing managed to co-opt them. They went over and joined the other side. So that, when they joined the other side, the writing was kind of on the wall. The Dali Sultanate fell in 1874. But that's not all. <laughs> we also have the Hui Revolt, also Chinese Muslims in Shenxi and Gansu in the northwest. Um, these, this revolt was suppressed with extreme violence by another one of these generals, Zuo Zongtang. Um, Zuo Zongtang, um, according to Shezno, wiped out the entire Muslim population in Gansu. Um, by 1870, according to Chesneau's estimates, several million people were killed in the post-rebellion repression. So the pattern, like the Taiping, is that most of the people seem to be killed after, you know, the formal rebellion is over, and then the armies go and com- exact what you know. I guess they consider revenge for having rebelled, right? Teaching them a lesson. Yeah, and ethnic cleansing. Ethnic cleansing, yeah. So uh, in Kashgaria, or Kashgar today, there's a prince named Yakub Beg. Um, he gets support from Britain and Russia. <laughs> is, that, is that the Afghan Yakub Beg? 
uh he i mean it's close it's close to afghanistan i don't think he's the well the dates are close too uh i mean yeah maybe his maybe the extent of his uh empire is is there he's from a big uh important royal family in central asia right so turkestan like that part of the world turkmenistan uzbekistan etc so he declares a sultanate uh, in 1862. So Zhuo Dongtang goes and crushes that as well, and it's reincorporated into the Qing administration in 1878, uh, renamed in 1885 to Xinjiang. So um, you probably are hearing about Xinjiang in the news today. This is, um, it had, it had a, about 16 years of independence in the 19th century uh, before being reincorporated um so secret societies in the concessions so in the coastal cities that are run as colonies by the europeans these uh, areas have rebellions as well the small knife society in amoy the red turbans in canton um, these are what marx i guess would call lumpen proletarians in some cases uh and proletarians in others coolies boatmen craftsmen uh the gentry and merchants are not on their side um, and you'll li- remember this name, the Society of Righteous Fists, <laughs> also comes from around this time. Um, and in Chesneau's book, you can read uh, there are peasant revolts almost every other day at this point. So they're mostly over famine relief. They're breaking into granaries. They're uh, attacking landlords, um, tax collectors, and, and that kind of thing. So you, I remember you said this about Russia in the 18th century, right? Or probably yeah. 18th, 19th, just hundreds and hundreds of peasant revolts every year. Yeah. So that's where we've gotten to in China by now. Um, so here's a couple of quotes about what the world looks like after. One foreign observer um, in 1865 writes, Smiling fields were turned into desolate wildernesses, fenced cities into ruinous heaps. The plains of Qiangnan, Qiangxi, and Chekang, I guess these are the same provinces that I just mentioned, but spelled differently, uh, were strewn with human skeletons, their rivers polluted with floating carcasses, wild beasts descending from their fastnesses in the mountains roamed at large over the land and made their dens in the ruins of deserted towns. No hands were left to till the soil and noxious weeds covered the ground once tilled with patient industry. Uh, there are reports of cannibalism. Um, the whole province of Zhejiang is deserted. Guizhou, Yunnan, and the Northwest and must, much of the North China Plain are in the same state. So here's another quote from Shesno. Uh, Shi lost nine-tenths of its Muslim population and Gansu two-thirds. That's three million inhabitants. The rest were deported. One half of Yunnan was wiped out and completely destroyed. Five million died in Guizhou. The Miao, uh, which is a type of people, I don't know, I don't think it's an ethnicity, but I think it's a group of people that were... Yeah, we talked about their rebellion in, in the first China episode. Yeah. Stripped of their lands, became tenant farmers or took refuge in the mountains. In a local rebellion like that of the Hakka, five or six hundred thousand were killed. So, Dave, obviously, with so much horror happening, um, Western the Western powers are going to ease up on China, right? They're going to say, we're going to let you keep more of your revenue, rebuild, that kind of thing. 
Yes, of course. <laughs> just just like the American election was stolen. <laughs> Uh, so no, um, instead, uh, this is a period where, um, the deep foreign power just keeps getting deeper and they keep taking control over more and more elements of China. So there's a famous guy, Robert Hart, who, uh, as we said, I, I think we mentioned that one of the treaties gave, uh, Britain basically control over the Chinese customs revenue. Well, so the, Robert... the, the right to consult on Chinese tariffs, <laughs> meaning, yes, to set them. So Robert Hart becomes the Inspector General of Customs. Um, so he's running basically the revenue service for the Qing from 1865 on. So this is basically like what they, the East India Company got from India in, after 1757. Um, the inspectorate moved from Shanghai to Beijing. So Robert Hart is based in Beijing. Um, so he's an enterprising guy. He started off as just an interpreter in Canton in 1858, but now he's the Inspector General of Customs. He's got 400 Westerners and 1,000 Chinese working for him. A quote from Chesno, only Hart's authority counted. Consequently, he had the direction of a powerful, completely autonomous administrative body. And the, the inspectorate uh, is in charge of taxes, uh, customs dues. They can quarantine cities based on, you know, what if their fear for epidemics and stuff, uh, research on epidemics. Um, they do coastal geographic surveys. They're in charge of harbors, rivers, lighthouses, buoys, beacons, and the postal service. Um, at one point, he wrote a manual of good conduct for the Chinese government, like if you guys want to learn how to behave. <laughs> And he was the one who negotiated the treaty, uh, the settlement of the Sino-French War. So the Sino-French War, uh, the end of the Sino-French War was negotiated with French negotiators on one side and Robert Hart on the other for the Chinese side. Yeah. yeah. Uh, at one point, uh, um, a Mandarin or, uh, you know, one of the Qing bureaucrats says to Robert Hart, we would gladly pay you all the increased revenue you have brought us if you foreigners would go back to your own country and leave us in peace as we were before you came. <laughs> yeah, well, right. relative peace. <laughs> so the Hu Sheng points out that the, the Qing's whole goal at this point is now to just avoid conflict with the imperialists, right? Because every time they fight, they lose. Um. They're trying to modernize, but their modernizations also are not successful. So Li Hongzhang, he's set up, uh, this is quoting Pankaj Mishra, he set up factories and dockyards for the production of modern weapons and ships, regulate regu relations with foreign powers, open legations in the capitals of Europe, America, and Japan, and sent students abroad. Uh, Li also helped set the country's first coal mines, telegraph networks, and railway tracks. So they're trying to modernize, uh, but you know, every time they have a battle with one of the European powers, it shows that their modernization was pretty much for nothing. Um, here's a little anecdote. One group of students, 120 young boys, is sent to Hartford, Connecticut in 1872. So they're trying to figure out how to reform their education system. They figure if we send 120 boys to the U.S. and they get the whole 15-year cycle of education from, you know, kindergarten to college, whatever, whatever it was back then, 15 years of American education, um, then they'll come back and they'll be products of the system and they'll really be able to kind of champion a new a reform. Um, but unfortunately, <laughs> the U.S. is just too racist 
<laughs> they 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 end up being expelled in 1881 because of the Chinese Exclusion Act. Um, so it's a, it's always that problem, you know. You want to lead the world, uh, but you're a little too racist to, um, you know, really convince the world, or well, you don't really want the world. <laughs> Um, anyway, Deng Guofen, um, he says in 1860, from time immemorial, barbarian assistance to China when crowned with success has always resulted in unexpected demands. Um, I guess we've covered the, the uh, Sino-French War, but part of the tensions between China and France were over these missionaries, which I even wrote mercenaries in my notes. Isn't that funny? Um, so there was a demonstration in Tianjin uh, with, where the French uh, opened fire on a dem- demonstrators. The protesters killed a consul and destroy a church. Uh, and here's the dynamic um, is that the Qing actually send a punitive expedition uh, to punish the protesters. They execute 16 civilians and pay France 460,000 taels of silver and send an official to France to apologize. So this is a key uh, moment where you see how much the Qing are willing to do to uh, not upset the Europeans. Um, well, that, that could lead to a war. I mean, that's the arrow yeah. incident. That's the the traditional pretext so if you apologize very quickly and offer to pay now it'll probably get away cheaper yeah um so you know i'm not saying any alternative strategy would work but uh as far as keeping the europeans at bay by placating them uh definitely doesn't work (laughs) so uh there by 1885 there are 12 concessions uh, concessions, which is like land that is under the control of Europeans in nine different towns. Um, in these concessions, there are 3,673 foreigners and 125,000 plus uh, Chinese. Um, the initial plan that the Europeans had was to expel all the Chinese, but then they realized collecting taxes from them was good, uh, good money. Um, you know, the the people, the Chinese people in the concessions had no rights whatsoever. This is quoting um, Chisno, I guess. And we're in the position of subjects of a colonial state. Um, there are 451 foreign companies operating. Uh, they obviously are favored from a tax perspective. And the Chinese, so here's, um, you know, there you'll hear this from leftists all the time, even today. Uh, that they'll call people compradors, a comprador elite which basically means, you know, somebody who's bought and paid for, like working on behalf of the imperialists. Well, comprador at this time was an actual job. Uh, I guess the word must come from Portuguese. And a comprador is somebody who literally buys stuff um, from, I guess, the European merchants. So the compradors are uh, the Chinese business that work with the European imperialist businesses um, in the concessions in the towns. Mm. Probably also supplying them with uh, food, labor. Yeah, yeah. Comradors. Um, and so uh, this is all, 1885 is a key year for lots of reasons. This is the um, Berlin Conference over Africa, which we'll get to probably towards the end of the series. 
Um, and also John Fisk in 1885, the American author publishes the book Manifest Destiny. So there's another uh, step on the road to this uh, <laughs> Armageddon we were talking about at the beginning. Uh, Manifest Destiny being the doctrine that the U.S. is destined to what? R- control the world or something? <laughs> no, uh, America's Manifest Destiny was to control the Western Hemisphere. Oh, okay, just the, they so, settled. They were they settled for the hemisphere. How uh, well? How, they, how they spelled it out. Um, Lincoln's uh, Secretary of State Seward was a big Manifest Destiny guy long before mm-hmm. Fisk's book. But yeah, they they talked about it openly. It was mm-hmm. America's destiny. It's going to happen. Canada will fall to us. You know whether we have to mm-hmm. invade it or whether it will just fall off like ripe fruit. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mexico, obviously. And all of South America, they they even talked about once we control everything, we might have to move the capital to a more oh. central location like Mexico City. Right. <laughs> um, so the the question is, I guess, on everybody's mind in China is, are they going to just partition China like they did Africa and just carve it up. Um, And the Qing dynasty position was, well, if we just give them what we want, what they want, they won't have to carve China up. Um, Lenin, (laughs) uh, comrade Vladimir Ilyich Lenin, um, in 1900, wrote a book called The War in China about the Boxer Rebellion, He's, which I'll quote from again later. But he said, the various European governments have already started to partition China. They are not doing it openly, but stealthily like thieves. They have begun to rob China as they would a corpse. I think it's pretty cool that we have uh, at the beginning of imperialism in China, we have Marx to quote and here in the middle, we have Lenin to quote. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, there's and then a, at the end, we'll have Mao. <laughs> there might be a reason why they're not, uh, as you say, like just partitioning China into different European zones. And, and part of it, I think, is the, the semi-cooperation of yeah. the Chinese rulers. Yeah, it's, just too, it's they're, easier they're to do it. They're playing their own game. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned all the rebellions. So if we don't get into a fight with the Europeans, that will give us a chance to crush all the various rebellions. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. they are leaking power and, and money pretty heavily. I think they're well aware that this dynasty is on its last legs and they are mm-hmm. simply trying to survive and guard their own power. And this, of course, is the, the heyday of the Dowager Empress. So the emperor died in 1861 and the new emperor, the Tongzhi emperor Mm -hmm. is five years old. This is uh, Sishi's son. So she is in a position of tremendous power and influence. And her key advisors are these guys you've mentioned before, uh, Zhuo Zhangtang, uh, Shang Guofan, Li Hongshang. And their, their approach seems to be, let's modernize, but at the same time, preserve Confucian values. So what they call the self-strengthening movement sounds like the Korean approach, you know, Eastern, uh, Eastern ways and Western technology, right. or I guess you could call it the change, but don't really change movement. And right. that's, 
you know, that's why the reforms were not as effective as they could have been. You know, they tried to reform in finance and administration. They created a a ministry of foreign affairs. Uh, They sent Chinese diplomats around the world. They allowed foreign diplomats to live in Beijing. They, They purchased armament factories outright from Europe. And we talked in the last episode about their efforts to modernize the army and the navy. They were more successful with the navy, but long term, uh, these efforts weren't enough. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they they were hoping. I mean, they they didn't have a great analysis either. They were just kind of hoping that if if we do what they what they do. Um, and and give them what they ask for, then they'll let us join their club. And I think it's... Yeah, yeah. but there's also an approach that to me is reminiscent of the the Eastern Roman Empire, the Byzantine. In fact, the adjective Byzantine really fits. Like with those uh, Muslim rebels, right? If you can't beat them, bribe them. Mm-hmm. And play play one against the other, and and just try to maintain a balance between your enemies, and if possible, get them to fight each other and leave us alone. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the absence of inter imperial rivalry, as they uh, came to call it, is is somewhat striking too, right? Like the the imperialists did manage to work out a an agreement to exploit China. It's a pretty big pie. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, so, from between eighteen in the sometime in the eighteen between the eighteen seventies and the eighteen nineties, Britain as an industrial uh, power has fallen behind Germany and the United States. They overtake uh, Britain in terms of you know their ability to produce quantitatively uh, the quality, the you know the industrial technological advancement. They're using tariffs. Britain still is following a free trade. Um, and they're using tariffs to develop their oil, chemical, and industrial industries. Um, so Britain, uh, there's a whole dynamic here that I'll get into a little bit later. But Britain's answer to this is to run a deficit with Germany and the U.S. And again, I'll go back over this. But they're running a deficit in their trade with Germany and the U S and they're running a gigantic, you know, bottomless surplus in their, uh, trade with India and China. Um, so they're trading, you know, it's this triangular trade, right? They're growing opium in India. They're selling it to China. They're getting tea from China and they're selling it to the United States, um, and Europe. Uh, and, and, um, and then the other power, superpower that Britain has at this time is is finance. So um, they're the financial giant. And, you know, yeah, I just wanted th- to mention oh. you're talking about their trade deficits with uh, the U.S. and Germany. Britain is well ahead, though, in uh, invisible exports. Mm-hmm. Uh, insurance. Lloyd's of London yes. insures the whole world exactly. and the shipping and all of those mm-hmm. things. And it's all kind of guaranteed by the Navy. Yeah. Uh, the the banks... Okay, so they, thanks to the Opium Wars, they've finally reversed the uh, situation where 
China China is now in debt to the European powers, which is where they where the imperialists love to be. Um, so the banks have penetrated. Uh, there's HSBC. Um, the Germans and the U.S. and the Japanese all have their own versions of the Hong Kong Shanghai Banking Corporation (HSBC), which still exists. These institutions, uh, quoting Chesno, controlled all foreign trade operations in the open ports as well as the foreign exchange market. They attracted deposits and had ready money for short-term loans to Chinese banks in the Chinese interior. So they brought the whole Chinese financial market under the influence of the Shanghai market, which was dominated by foreign banks. Um, Shanghai, meanwhile, is having strikes, just like their peasant revolts every other day there's strikes uh every other day in shanghai um workers in shanghai are working 72 hours a week 320 days a year um getting corporal punishment and uh eating about one bowl of rice uh as their compensation so a day um just to get back to this so yeah the triangular trade i've already uh talked about it well let me, let me just quote uh, Latham, who's quoted in Mike Davis. The chain worked like this. The United Kingdom paid the United States for cotton by bills upon the Bank of England. The Americans took some of those bills to Canton and swapped them for tea. The Chinese exchanged the bills for Indian opium. Some of the bills were remitted to England as profit. Others were taken to India to buy additional commodities, as well as to furnish the money remittance of private fortunes in India and the funds for carrying on the Indian government at home. So there's more about the carrying charges that is pretty fascinating <laughs> when you look yeah. at the details. Um, then there's the customs revenues. Um, uh, let's see. Okay, so in terms of India and their role in the system, they are the first consumer, the number one consumer of British exports. So they're taking two-fifths of finished cotton goods, three-fifths of electrical products, railway equipment, and books and pharmaceuticals after 1870. So um, one of the consequences of this, according to Mike Davis, is that the, the British don't have to upgrade their production capital the way that the Germans and the U.S. are doing. They can just take all their profits and invest it in various parts of their empire where they earn higher profits off of it. Um, they have the military expenditures, uh, <laughs> which for the Indian budget are never less than 34% of India's budget. Um, Victorian England's military budget is 3% at this time. So this is, uh, to quote Davis, a serendipitous situation that considerably diminished domestic tensions over imperialism. <laughs> Uh, so here's another trick, the gold standard. So Britain has adopted the gold standard in 1821. Most of the rest of the world is either silver standard or bimetallic. Um, after 1871, Germany and the U.S. switch to the gold standard. Europe and Japan eventually follow. So now there's a so there's silver, which had been money before, like the ultimate backing of all money uh, in these countries is demonetized. So there, uh, there's a flood of silver. And remember, this physical silver was all looted from China or extracted from China through the indemnities of, since 1839. So the, there's a whole bunch of silver. Um, it's been demonetized. And uh, now China, uh, China's currency, 
and India's suffers inflation. So Britain is on gold, but it keeps India on silver, um, <laughs> which means that their exports to India are uh, worth more and India's uh, exports to Britain are worth relatively less. Uh, the index, according to, again, Davis, uh, is that the rupee value falls from 100 you know, out of 100 to 64 out of 100 between the 70s and the 90s. Um, and remember, India pays Britain for being colonized. Um, uh, they're called home charges. And India has to pay Britain for this privilege of being a colony uh, in, uh, in gold. Um, so they, the devaluation of silver all actually costs India an estimated 105 million pounds between 1874 and 1894. Um, the switch to the gold standard also wipes out one-fourth of the purchasing power of those with silver ornaments. Um it screws farmers over. <laughs> so Indian farmers get money that's losing value when they sell their grain. Um, so they sell pretty much all their grain. Um, and then the farmers have to switch to export crops to try to help Britain's balance of payments. Um, so here's another quote, I guess. I think Davis is quoting someone else here. By advancing money to the peasants who grew cash crops for export, the British and their agents preempted the productive capacity of India's agriculture. The area under cash crops expanded even at times when food grain for home consumption would have fetched a better price. The depreciation of the currency and the preemption of the productive capacity of vast parts of the country combined to achieve the miracle that India could export produce at stable export prices even at a time when severe famines tormented the country. By absorbing silver and exporting wheat at the lowest price, India served as the buffer at the base of the world economy of the late 19th century. Um, there's uh, other tricks. <laughs> there's uh, there's India's the use of India's financial reserves, including grain, which give Britain more room to maneuver financially. So, uh, quoting Krishnendu Ray, who's also quoted by Davis, by preventing India from transforming its annual surpluses into gold reserves, the India office contributed towards keeping British interest rates low. English banks were able to borrow from the India office at 2% and reinvest on the London market at 3%. So uh, what's the old thing? Uh, three, two, three, two, three, three. You're, you borrow at 2%. Invest at three percent, and you're on the golf course by three p.m. <laughs> um, so, Be Beijing, also from the save silver standard, has to inflate its paper currency, um, debase its copper coins. Um, the land revenues, which are assessed in silver, um, they uh, the peasants don't get any tax relief uh, from the inflation thanks to, because the land revenues are not assessed in gold, they're assessed in silver. Um, the tail loses two-thirds of its exchange value. So the imports to China for railway or whatever they're, they're trying to modernize, right? All the capital they want to modernize, they pay in gold. So China, they have to export more to get the gold to buy that stuff. Um, so they're, again, their deficit 
is increasing. Their their debt to the European powers is increasing. Um, it's a de facto tax increase. So you remember that Marx uh, said that in in the beginning of the Second Opium War, he said, you know, look, China will is not going to be a market for British textiles. Um, Chinese peasants are self-sufficient and they produce a lot locally unless you can somehow dis- destroy that local production. Uh, you're not going to be able to get into that market. Well, <laughs> you know, it took uh, several decades, um, but they finally, uh, the British finally managed to do that. So um, the handicraft industry is pretty much ruined by the 1870s. Um, silk and tea are substituted for food um, in many places where landlords have taken the lands of ruined peasants and craftsmen. Um people are ruined by these wars as well as, as I read the descriptions. So um, that's the, um, that's the sophistication of uh, this, these swindles now. (laughs) It's uh, you know, I remember we did an episode a long time ago about um, you know, the, I guess it was the 17th century, maybe the early 18th, you know, the slave, the triangular so-called triangular trade, basically the slave trade. Um, with the Caribbean and Europe and America and Africa. Um, and this is, this is the version now is, you know, India, China and Europe. Um, and these, these, all these manipulations with finance, industrial products from Germany and the U S and, uh, gold and silver currency speculations. And, and of course the global market and grain, so the result of all this is these monstrous famines, uh, what Mike Davis calls the late Victorian holocausts. Um, so quoting Davis, uh, between 1875 and 1900, the worst famines in Indian history, grain exports from India increased from 3 million to 10 million tons. So that could have fed 25 million people um, they exported 25 million people food, people's worth of food uh, during the famines. Um, so the Qing dynasty, you know, prior to imperialism had very good food security, uh, storage and redistribution and good flood protection. Um, but because of what's been happening since the first opium war, there's no more revenue to maintain it. And the countryside has been devastated by the civil wars. Um and the opium wars and the rebellions. So in 1876 to 1879, there's a Northern Chinese famine where between nine and 13 million people died out of 18, out of 108 million who live in that part of Northern China. 30 million total die of famines in China between 1876 and 1900. So their famines and their floods, the Yellow River flood of 1887 uh, killed millions. There's also cholera outbreaks from 1889 in the South. Um, just quoting Chesneau about the engineering issue. Both time and the means to repair the dikes and canals were lacking. The abandonment of hydraulic engineering work in many parts of China was caused not only by corruption, but also by the depletion of local resources. So that also is cyclical with what happens, the agricultural economy now becomes less productive, less resilient to disasters, and it's producing less. So they export less, so they have less revenue, and they're in a vicious, vicious economic cycle now. Um, 
So the peasants um, are, you know, hit the worst, right? So peasants are even not able to keep their families together. There's one uh, quote by Chesno about this um, foreign writer, Marshall, who writes about the fate of peasants, says many landowning peasants had sold everything and sunk into the ranks of tenants. Tenants had become coolies or soldiers or laborers on the landed estates and all were in debt to moneylenders. Um, then uh, the Sino-Japanese war over Korea <laughs> um, starts. We covered that in the last episode and it's another proof that reform isn't working. So um, you get a couple of responses to this uh, in terms of at, from the top, uh, there are elites who want to do reforms, badly want to do reforms. There are um, middle you know, middle class people like Sun Yat-sen, who's trying to plan revolts. And then uh, at the base, uh, you know, the, the ordinary people, um, they do the boxer rebellion. Mm. So uh, shall we jump in? I think I can, I think we can make it. Okay. <laughs> um, okay. So the, Let's do the reform attempts first. Um, Sun Yat-sen actually tries to um, plan his first revolt uh, in 1895, but he's uh, he tries to do it. His plan is exposed, and he flees to Japan before much can come of it. There's a clerk named Kang Yu-wei. He writes a series of memos to the emperor, uh, one of which he gets 1,200 signatures on. He says, It is a well-known fact that in ancient times, countries were destroyed by the armed might of other countries, but today countries are ruined by foreign trade. This is the danger now facing China. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> the Guangxi emperor is persuaded uh, by these memos to start the 100 Days of Reform. This is 1898. So the 100 Days of Reform, they do all kinds of things. They found societies, newspapers, a newspaper called World Events, another called Hunan News. But here's Hu Sheng's analysis. They failed to understand that the imperialists would never give up on their aggressive policy of their own will. The reformists began to plead to the imperialist aggressors and voluntarily capitulated to them. Uh, Sheng argues their analysis was hopelessly naive when they said things like international law itself is a dependable shield. Um, they wanted to prove to the imperialists that uh, within 10 years, we shall be able to stand on our own feet. Another one wrote, the Japanese and Britain will spare no effort to support us. <laughs> we are lucky and happy to have such an opportunity. Wow. In, uh, 1898 yeah <laughs> they didn't pay enough attention to the japanese experience of sending no. diplomats around the world to ask to renegotiate the treaties yeah that exactly. uh, didn't go so well didn't work <laughs> that's not how it works they should have they were borrowing uh wheaton's book on international law they should have uh borrowed a couple of speeches by bismarck about blood and iron that probably well, or, would have or just talk to the japanese like that line uh uh, about uh, international law being a dependable shield. I'm sure the Japanese would have laughed their butts off. <laughs> yeah, that one. Right. How's that Yeah, working out for you? So Mao, I think, they should have listened to Mao, but although Mao was a little too young at this point, but Mao later would write, the imperialist powers certainly do not invade China with the purpose of transforming feudal China into capitalist China. Their aim is just the opposite, to transform China into their semi-colony or colony. 
Anyway, uh, the Empress Dowager crushes the reform in September 1898. Kang Yue himself escaped, but others were beheaded. Um, uh, okay, yes. Um, another one on commerce. There's another Chinese intellectual, Liang Qi Chao, who writes, A hundred times more than Western chi- soldiers, Western commerce weakens China. Um, all right. Um, let's go on to the Boxer Uprising. Um, so the Boxer Uprising, the Yi Ho Tuan Uprising. Um, Lenin, <laughs> again, in that same article I quoted before, uh, he has a great, you know, very indignant passage about what the Boxer Uprising's grievances are. So he talks about how, uh, you know, the Europeans are saying, oh, you know, they uh, they hate our they hate our civilization. They hate our freedom. <laughs> yeah, they hate us for our freedom. <laughs> so he says, Lenin says, what made the Chinese attack Europeans? What caused the rebellion which the British, French, Germans, Russians, Japanese, etc. are so zealously crushing? The hostility of the yellow race toward the white race? The Chinese hatred for European culture and civilization? Answer the supporters of the war. Yes, it is true that the Chinese hate the Europeans, but which Europeans do they hate and why? The Chinese do not hate the European peoples. They've never had any quarrel with them. They hate the European capitalists and the European governments obedient to them. How can the Chinese not hate those who have come to China solely for the sake of gain, who have utilized their vaunted civilization solely for the purpose of deception, plunder, and violence? who have waged wars against China in order to win the right to trade in opium with which to drug the people, and who hypocritically carried their policy of plunder under the guise of spreading Christianity. Um, And their humiliations are many. Um, The Christian orphanages are subject to conspiracy theories. Um, Chesneau writes... Many small children arrived at the orphanages in very poor health, and no sooner were they baptized than they died, thus giving rise to still darker suspicions. Uh, the missionaries follow their own law, right? There's no way to investigate what's going on there. Um, there's the Shanghai Parks, if you've seen The Chinese Connection, uh, Bruce Lee film, uh, where he kicks the sign that says no dogs or Chinese allowed in Shanghai. Yeah. He throws it up and kicks it and breaks it into a million pieces. Apparently that was... Uh, one of those standing ovation <laughs> moments in the theater in the 70s when the movie came out. Um, so uh, what is the what are the boxers? So they start off um, in the Jili and Henan border areas. Again, these are the most disaster flood stricken areas. What's their thing? They, uh, they hate the missionaries. Uh, they want to get rid of the foreigners. They want to get rid of the foreign power over China. Um, they don't have modern weapons, uh, so they're kind of into the Kung Fu and they they believe in a little bit of the old magic. So um, they use amulets and incantations to make themselves invisi- invincible to bullets. And um, so there's so many different groups that have done this. Yeah. Uh, there's the, you were, you wrote the Mau Mau in Kenya. There's yeah. the Mai Mai in Congo. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah. There's the Haiti, the Haitian Revolution. So it seems like whenever you're fighting superior firepower, it's a, it's a thing you kind of have to do is say, look, we have, a, <laughs> we have a magical answer. Yeah, well, I remember um, uh, Charles Gordon. That mm-hmm. There were plenty of uh, Chinese 
who thought he was, he had some kind of secret invulnerability to, uh, yeah. to bullets. Yeah. But then Townsend, Frederick Townsend Ward. No, he didn't have it. <laughs> <laughs> didn't have that one. Uh, so there, so here's their organizational um, chart. There's two main sections uh, for each of the eight trigrams. There's yellow belts or turbans or standards, yellow belts or red belts. Um, each unit of about 25 to 100 men has a grand master and a kind of a financial backer or patron. They're divided in companies of 10. They train all day with weapons. They have an oath of total obedience to the leader, and their rules include no accepting presents, no plundering, no stealing, no molesting the populace, no sex with women, no eating meat, and no drinking tea. Um, I don't know why sex with women is specified. That's Chesno. Maybe it just means no sex. Anyway, um, coordination between groups is flexible. 70% of uh, the boxers are of peasant origins, and most of them are very young, like child, like children, like between 12 and 18. Um, Older ones include boatmen, porters, ruined craftsmen, small shopkeepers, peddlers, monks, a few schoolmasters and their pupils, and large numbers of soldiers. This is all quoting Chesneau. Uh, the gentry and vagabonds would join later, so we, they got some lumpen uh, and some elite uh, participation. And women actually had their own units, uh, which were segregated by age. So the red lanterns were 12 to 18, the blue lanterns were middle-aged women, and the green lanterns were widows. The Red Lanterns were led by one 20-year-old woman. Uh, she was the Holy Mother of the Yellow Lotus. Um, so in 1900, uh, there's a story, uh, a primary source from uh, from 1900, that uh, a letter from a Frenchman who was hanging out with the boxers. And he saw them. He describes kind of the, their training. They're doing like kata, right? They're like yeah. punch, punch, turn, punch, punch, turn. Um, And he says, what sort of people teach the boxing? He asks an old man. And the old man says, there are no teachers of boxing. There are only the gods who cling to the boys' bodies, enabling them to practice. This is called holding boxing. After 10 days practice, they reach perfection. I have a feeling (laughs) this guy was (laughs) telling... (laughs) <laughs> telling the Frenchman a bunch of BS because he didn't well, want to tell him. Yeah, he didn't want to identify who the, who the teacher was. There's also the uh, the difficulty with this whole uh, conflict in in the name boxers. Yeah. Right. Yeah. The uh, righteous fists sounds a hell of a lot better. Boxer mm-hmm. is easy to mock and and uh, deride. That's true. That's true. It's all there's a lot of um there's a lot of imperial propaganda in translation, isn't there? Yeah. Like how you translate something. Yeah. Uh okay, so the um Yi Ho Tuan <laughs> insurgents uh are managed to take Beijing. They control Beijing by April uh nineteen hundred. Um but um Again, Hu Sheng says the political immaturity of the peasants prevented them from resisting basically the temptations to be co-opted by the um, regime. So the Qing uh, dynasty basically, you know, when the when the rebellion starts, they're in that usual dilemma, right? They um, they can fail to they can fight the rebellion and lose potentially, and then their regime is done. Uh, if they meet their demands, their demands are mainly to get rid of the foreigners. So that means they're in conflict with the imperialists who they know they can't beat. 
Right. So, so this they... is where Sishi got her idea. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so they go with, um, they kind of temporize, they kind of play for time for a while. Uh, and then ultimately they, they kind of call the fighters to arms. You know, they say like, yes, you know, let's, let's fight. And then they, um, and then they basically tell the imperialists, don't worry, we're going to, we're going to talk them down and then we're going to let you have your way with them. So, um, Yuan Shikai, who we mentioned, uh, from Korea, he was the governor of Shandong by this time. And, uh, he, um, is one of the Qing dynasty agents, I guess, that ends up crushing the rebellion. So among the things the boxers did when they entered Beijing was kill the Japanese and German envoys. Um, So Admiral Seymour, uh, starting in Tianjin, he took 2,000 men to Beijing to deal with this little, this little, uh, these malcontents. Uh, then things got a little hotter than he uh, he thought they would be, so he retreated. Uh, by the time he got back to Tianjin, um, he had a battle to fight there with the uh, insurgents from for, with the rebels. I shouldn't call them insurgents, right? There. Well, I guess they're insurgents against the Qing too. Uh, the rebels. Um, so the battle at Tianjin between the imperialists and the boxers is a month long. Uh, June 17th to July 14th. It's the hardest battle, according to uh, uh, Husheng, that the imperialists have had in China so far uh, in the you know half century or so that they've been uh, taking parts of China. Um, so Admiral Seymour uh, is a little bit s- surprised by this. So he takes his time to put together a big multinational coalition <laughs> Um, now they take 40,000 men. Wow. Um, yeah. And they depart on August 4th. That, <clears throat> that's a, that's a large number yeah. for an expeditionary yeah. force. So is this, uh, because the Chinese are getting better at fighting them or is it, uh, a reflection of how much money is involved? Uh, I think it's cause they're getting better at fighting them and they're not, um, the, I mean, the thing about the boxers is they're, you know, they're not, they're low skill and low equipment, but the morale is totally different from the Qing uh, armies that were fighting against the imperialists during the Opium Wars, right? Like they yeah. know, they know who they're fighting. They, you know, they're not surprised by, and they're not like, they're not um, surprised by the disparity in casualties. Like they're sort of ready to take more casualties. Yeah. Uh, so they're not, and they, you know, like, the, like I said, they, they believe they're invincible. <laughs> so, uh, you know, yeah. Anyway, it's, it's just a different, um, it's a different ideological thing, which leads to the imperialists to be even more vicious than they've ever been once they crush the rebellion. Um, in the provinces as well, the boxers are killing thousands of, Chinese Christians, hundreds of missionaries. Can, can um, we just come back to Sisu for a moment? I, I mean, sure. I might be wrong in portraying her as the the leading figure, but certainly that was the way I first learned it. That she had a tremendous role here in influencing the uh, the government's position. So, on the one hand, you're right; they don't want to offend the imperialists. On the other hand, there's an awful lot of these boxers, and mm-hmm. uh, 
they're not really in a position to put down this rebellion and they definitely don't want to be the target of the boxers aggression so uh Sishi basically took the position hey let's take a step back point the boxers at the imperialists and mm-hmm. let them go mm-hmm. we we can apologize to the westerners and say sorry just can't you know control yeah. these people feel free to kill them you know yeah. if you want but meanwhile, encourage the boxers and tell them, hey, we're behind you all the way. Uh, exactly. And that way, whoever wins, you can come out looking good. Yeah. So they all, <laughs> another thing she does is she flees Beijing. <laughs> so the boxers are in control and the royal family has left. Yeah, um, just in case. <laughs> just in case. Uh, so when uh, the imperialists come, the eight nation coalition, uh, coalition of the willing, if you uh, prefer, <laughs> the very uh, willing, yeah. they enter Beijing in, on August 14th, uh, 1900. Um, and they deploy Li Hongzhang and Wan Shikai uh, to the city and to the countryside to basically crush the uprising everywhere. Um during the famine so it's like when they say millions of people died during the famine it's all probably impossible to disaggregate the famine from this counterinsurgency uh you know the they're burning villages they're killing people they're probably destroying their crops too uh so and the imperialists themselves do the you know what they've always done in china they are tremendous looting massacres rapes thousands of people are killed um in each of the zones that are taken over by the uh you know different countries um kaiser there's a famous quote from kaiser wilhelm uh or i guess king william of germany uh, he's hyping his troops up for this uh, for this expedition, and he says, "Anyone who falls into your hands falls to your sword. Make the name German remembered in China for a thousand years, so that no Chinaman will ever again dare to squint at a German." Um, there's different translations for this, but this was the one that I thought was the most uh, direct. Um, so there's systematic carnage and sacking, uh, according to Chesneau massacres in Beijing, Tianjin, Baoding. There's punitive, ex- the so-called punitive expeditions I mentioned where they burn entire villages to the ground. And Russians um, in particular uh, <laughs> committed an atrocity, which lots of people write about, including Lenin, uh, where they basically cut thousands of people's throats and throw them into the Heilongjiang River in Manchuria. Um uh, no again, in an orgy of cruelty, the foreign troops massacred thousands of men in P- Beijing. Women and whole families committed suicide rather than survive the dishonor. The whole city was sacked. Same in Tianjin and Baoding. The b- soldiers burned whole villages, sparing nothing. But here's the thing. Both Hu Sheng and Chesno say that the intensity of the fights uh, made the uh, imperialists realize that this is, you know, if you do want to colonize and try to administer china this is what you're going to be administering right so uh says in the world of the early 20th century the boxers were above all the first great movement against modern colonialism 
they demonstrated the existence and strength of Chinese popular nationalism, and in the face of their intensity, the Western powers abandoned their intentions, their intentions to divide up the territory of China. So they, uh, the imperialists, you know, they don't also have unlimited ability to decide what happens, and so they decide, well, we might as well bet on the Qing dynasty again. Yeah, rule through proxies. Let them yeah. take the heat, and yeah. uh, we, we can just continue to count our profits. Yeah. Um, so Sun Yat-sen actually again tries to rebel. He he tries a rebellion. He lands, uh, tries to march on Amoy. He's got 20,000 men, which he managed to raise fairly quickly. The Japanese sponsor him initially, but then they're like, uh, no, <laughs> thought I was into this, but... Uh... <laughs> change their mind so they withdraw their support so Sun Yat-sen has to give up so the Qing signed the Boxer Protocol of 1901 this includes paying another 450 million tails of silver suppress all anti-foreign activities um, the imperialists occupy the concessions formally with their uh, own troops um, and a court, as uh, I guess Hu Sheng says, the diplomatic corps becomes the super government of China. The Qing, <laughs> the Qing dynasty say they are moved to tears by how generous the imperialists are. Hu <laughs> <laughs> um, Sheng also says the banks have now become major tools of aggression. Foreign imperialists assumed full control over China's industry, mining, and communications and deprived national capital of any possibility of development so now with the boxer rebellion defeated let's uh let's wrap up because we're we're not coming back to china during this uh during this century um what's going on now is japan becomes more and more decisive after they defeat russia spoiler alert oh are we doing this (laughs) no i mean we'll 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 get to it eventually (laughs) Yeah, uh, Japan wants to carve up more and more of China. So there's a di- there's a dispute between Japan and the U.S., uh, which is the main issue for control of China. Japan wants to sort of make China their colony, like the whole of China. Mm-hmm. They want to swallow the whole thing. Um, the U.S. wants to insist on what's called an open door. So they want it to be open for everybody. Um, they call that protecting China's sovereignty. <laughs> <laughs> so. Uh, you know the yeah the russians uh you know have ambitions in manchuria which the japanese also are trying to preempt um the qing return oh, in oh go ahead yes see she came back in triumph yes and, triumph. and she's back in charge and <laughs> she undertakes a new wave of reforms so you remember mm-hmm. the reformers that she had beheaded in yeah. in what was it 1898 now yeah, she has a new program of reforms even more radical than what those guys were suggesting right so the the woman had oh nine lives at least <laughs> yeah so they're talking about a constitution now uh in 1905 they abolished the exam system so the mandarin exams of thousands of years uh have finally been abolished. Um, they start consultative assemblies. They start this nine year in in nineteen in nineteen oh eight. They say, okay, we're going to spend nine years studying different constitutions to figure out what's best for China. 
1910, they figure, oh, let's uh, speed this process up. Listen, <laughs> people are people are people really want this constitution, so we'll do a three. We'll revise it to a three-year period in 1910. But uh, alas, in 1911, uh, the Qing Dynasty is ended, and uh, the revolution breaks out. Alas. Um, Alas for poor Cixi. I think she's dead by then. <laughs> and the imperialist. Yeah, she dies, what, 1908 or something? Yeah. Right? And uh, yeah, you know, for that story, for the story of the Chinese Revolution, you'll have to come back for the next series. Um, so that was it, Dave. That was, uh, we, we went from 1839 to 1911.